Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Have you ever thought, maybe I'm a genius at something or naturally gifted at a particular sport, but I just haven't realised it or I haven't tried that sport yet? Have you dreamed of secretly uncovering a hidden talent later in life you never knew you had? Okay, maybe that's just me. But it's also the incredible story of Olympic marathon runner Sinead Diver. Sinead is extraordinarily talented at running, placing 10th at the recent Tokyo Games. Yet she didn't start running until she was 33. She ran her first marathon at 37, where, get this, she qualified for the World Championships in Beijing. From there, Sinead's life changed forever. She won the Melbourne Marathon in 2018, setting a new course record and was the third fastest marathon time from an Aussie female ever. She was seventh at the London Marathon and fifth at the New York Marathon, and then earned her place at the Tokyo Games at the age of 44. While it's an aspect which makes Sinead's story unique, it's also the thing that she hates the most, and that's the focus on her age. She believes people place limitations on her, and it even causes sponsors to unnecessarily hesitate. She prefers to talk in running years rather than age years, and in that case, she's the tender age of 11. And this extraordinary story begins 17,000 kilometres away in a tiny village in Ireland. So I grew up in Ireland in a small town called Belmullet. It's on the west coast. Um, so I lived like really near the ocean. And growing up as a child, I was really quiet, uh, very shy kid. Uh, but I loved sports and been really active. And I spent like most of my summers either at the beach or back at, there's these really beautiful cliffs near us. And uh, as kids, we used to go back and climb, climb those all the time. So that was really good fun. Um, and yeah, like at the beach as well, even though the weather was shocking, like we'd still like swim every day and <laughs> like play in the <laughs> sand dunes and stuff. So that was really good fun. Um, uh, in primary school though, we didn't have any PE classes or anything like that. It was all, um, an academic focus. And uh, it was the same when I, uh, went to secondary school. That was, we, we did have a PE class there like once a week. Um, mm. but we were discouraged from playing sports as girls. The school was run by nuns and um, they were quite conservative. So I didn't do a lot of sport in school, but outside of school, I played soccer and basketball. And um, yeah, I just loved, loved being active. And then I, when I finished secondary school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I knew that I love sport and the only kind of um, uni degree that kind of called to me was PE teaching mm. uh, just because <laughs> of the sporting side of things, even though I didn't really think too much about the teaching side of things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I ended up going to Limerick um, to study PE and Irish teaching for four years. Um, so at yeah. your school, which was run by the nuns, sport, yeah. you said, wasn't something that was encouraged at all. In primary school, what were your experiences like at school? Again, the focus was very academic. Um, I had quite a difficult time at primary school, actually, because um, the headmistress of the school was quite strict. And unfortunately, she was quite uh, abusive um, to us as kids. So in particular from... Um, so grade four to grade six, uh, she was my, I was in her classroom and, uh, yeah, that was a very tough time. And, um, yeah, like it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about. It's mm. hard to look back on it. She was like abusive in a, like we, she hit us a lot and she took a particular set against me because I was a very quiet kid. Mm. Um, but she was more, um, it was more mental abuse. Um, you know, she would really try and humiliate me on a daily basis. And yeah, like it's very difficult to deal with that as a, as a young kid, because you tend to think that you've done something wrong mm. all the time and you don't realize that it's her issues and her insecurities that are driving this. And mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I only realized that as an adult, but yeah, it was a difficult thing to go through as you know, an eight, nine, 10, mm. 11 year old kid. In a small town and probably the only school in the town, was there any one you could turn to or did turn to or was it some, any way you could complain or let people know? 
You know, it was kind of uh, different times back then. So, you know, as a kid, you were, you only spoke really when you were spoken to and you would never really challenge authority. So, mm. you know, a lot of, I think there were whispers around the town about what she used to do, but she was kind of in the general community, she would have been respected quite a lot in the headmistress of the school mm. and people would have thought she was right. So if we were getting hit, um, you know, it, we would have thought, well, they'll think that we deserved it. Mm. Um, and I, I never uh, turned to my parents or anything because I didn't want to get in more trouble at mm. home, you know, if I had been doing something wrong at school. And mm. yeah, I mean, it's such a pity. And I've actually spoken to a few of the other uh, people that were in my class at the time. And I didn't realize how much it impacted everyone else. Like, I think at the time I thought, oh, she's just picking on me. And I didn't realize she was like that with a lot of other kids as well. Mm. Um, And she, yeah, like a lot of people have struggled since then. Mm. How did it affect you? Um, I think that uh, I was just it made me more anxious as a person. Mm. Um, I always had issues with, uh, public speaking or Mm. speaking in groups. Um, I think a lot of the time I tried to appease her and please her. So I'd always tell her what I thought she wanted to hear. And when you do that for a few years, that tends to (laughs) follow you Mm. for a while. So I really had to, you know, uh, try to learn to not be like that and Mm. to, you know, express my own opinions. And uh, it, it just made me quite vulnerable, I think, for a lot of years. It's a lot to um, process with little kids, isn't it? You don't know what's that. You believe that you're in trouble for a reason, I suppose. It's an awful thing for little kids to, to have to go through. Has she ever been held to account or anything like that for that behaviour? No, she hasn't, unfortunately. Um, I spoke to a friend recently who uh, she wrote her a very powerful letter mm-hmm. about what the abuse did to her and how it impacted her whole life. Um, and she sent it and she, she still sees her in, in the town and mm-hmm. um, there, she's never reacted or anything. And yeah, she, when she sent me the letter, like I cried when I read it, it was so emotional and the struggles that she's gone through since then. Um, yeah. And it it gave her some relief, I think, because she'll never be held to account or she'll never take responsibility for what she did. Um, And it's very hard. So much time has passed now. And a lot of us are, you know, not many of us are at home anymore. And she would be an old lady now. Like she, I can't remember what age she was. I thought she was really old at the time. time yeah. She might've only been in, I don't know, in her forties, yeah. but um, she would be an, like an old lady now. And I think it would do a lot more damage than anything, trying to dig everything up again and mm. to, yeah. Mm. And also it's very difficult to prove a lot of things. Yeah. Except it seems as though there are a lot of people who have had similar experiences is it good that at least now you and your friends have been able to talk about it and and give voice to what happened? Yeah, because it's, um, I guess to know that others have had the same experience and just been able to share stories and get some relief from that. Um, yeah, it's definitely better and um, it, it takes away a bit of the burden of it, of it. Um, yeah. Like we haven't spoken in depth about it. We probably, probably should do, but like I haven't been home for a long time, for years. And it, it is quite difficult still to talk about it, but I've talked about it a lot with my sisters, you know, they were across what happened and. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And as I said, I think it's always powerful giving voice to these kind of things, especially if a lot of your peers or a lot of people in town were going through the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely good to talk about it and to to get that release, I think. So how did you imagine your life and your future even then? So you had no idea that you had this hidden talent. So how did you imagine and who did you look up to and want to be when you were little? Um... Oh, wow. I don't, I didn't have any, there was no sporting stars or anything. Uh, 
I didn't really have any clear visions of what I wanted to do with my life. I think I was kind of just tipping away and not really thinking that far ahead, mm. which, you know, is not, not, not a great thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> um, and I kind of just, like, as I said, with the PE teaching, I didn't really think it through that you know, whether I wanted to be a teacher or not. Um, but I ended up then after the degree doing, um, a year in IT Mm -hmm. and I've been in IT ever since. (laughs) As well as now in sport. It's funny how it's come through three, three, six years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you also met, met your husband at university as well, but how is it that you guys came to Australia from Ireland to Australia? Uh, yeah, so we, um, after uni, we went to Dublin and worked there for a couple of years. And I remember at the time, there's a lot of people coming to Australia for a year. We traveled down the East Coast of Australia for maybe, oh, I can't remember, a few months and then ended up in Sydney. Um, but we actually, it was funny, we ran out of money, like we flew into Cairns and ran out of money by the time we hit Townsville. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long trip to Sydney without uh, money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up working at a seafood restaurant for a few weeks to get some more cash. And then we made our way down to Sydney and we were there for maybe six months before moving to Melbourne. <laughs> Came for a year, stayed for a lifetime. So that's the dream, isn't it? From a lot of Irish people as well. It's like a rite of passage to come to Australia, yeah. isn't it? When <laughs> yeah. you're in your twenties as yeah. well. Same with us doing our, our gap year over in um in the UK. All right. Well, tell us that, how is it then that you started running? It seems extraordinary that we're up to like your twenties, thirties now, and we haven't even talked about what makes you on this podcast, yeah. and that is <laughs> your running because it was a late start. Yeah, so I was 32 um, when I got pregnant with Eddie, my son. He was born in December of um, 2009. And after that, I'd always kind of run a little bit, like um, just for general fitness. But um, my sister um, had entered this running event around the town in Melbourne and it was a team event and they needed someone else to make up the numbers in their team. And she asked me to go along and run with them. And, uh, so I finished a lap of the town really quickly for someone who wasn't really a runner. And how quick, and for those who don't know the tan in Melbourne, how far is it? Uh, it's 3.84 kilometers. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, your time was my first goal was 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then a week later, I did 14.30, I think, or something like that. <laughs> um, so one of the guys there was like, you should join a running group. And he didn't believe your first time, did he? Oh, yeah. So he, so you could, if you couldn't make it at the, it was on at a lunchtime. And if you couldn't make it at a certain time, you could just do the lap yourself and record your time. And he didn't believe that I did that, <laughs> the 15, 15.10. So I went along the the following week or two weeks, I think, and I ran it again with him and I just like flew off (laughs) much quicker just to prove a point. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. So yeah, so I ended up joining uh, a running group after that, a a few months after that. And um, yeah, that's kind of where it all started. I started, you know, training, um, I think five days a week and it was all still very casual and I, I just wasn't taking it very seriously or anything. <laughs> it, was, it was actually a good place to meet people because, uh, you know, just to get to know more people in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and yeah, it kind of took off from there. That fourteen twenty as well, that was three months after giving birth to your first child as well, wasn't it? Yeah, a very important fact in there. Um, up until then, were there any hints that you had this talent at all? Like you, you weren't encouraged to play sport at school, but you were very active. Were there any times that you had an athletics carnival or a race or any time in your childhood or in your 20s up until that point where there was an indication you were they, this talented at running? Um, we did have one sports day in school. And they needed um, a girl to run 800 metres or a couple of laps of the pitch. And I stuck my hand up and then we went 
because I was the winner <laughs> in quotes, <laughs> I was the only girl in the race. For, for that race, I went off to like the county championships mm-hmm. and raced my second ever 800 meters on the track. And I did like pretty well, but I didn't win or anything. I get so for someone who didn't run at all, and I can't remember where I placed, but you know, I, I had a, a decent run. Yeah. I, that could have been an indicator, but I didn't realize it. And there was nobody there who kind of to said, say, you know, awesome. to suggest maybe, <laughs> you know, you should do some training in that. And yeah, I don't know. I've always had a lot of energy though. Like yeah. always, you know, I, my sister used to say it to me when I ran in Melbourne, like she, she just couldn't believe how, you know, how much I could run or how mm. long I could run for. But I kind of thought, you know, she was only comparing to herself and she's not usually into running. So. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, like when I went to uni, like doing PE, you would think that I could fall into it in that way. But like I was 17 going on 18 when I went to uni. Mm. And um, even at that age, people thought you should have, you know, discovered what your sport was and that yeah. you should now be focusing on zoning in on that particular sport and because I hadn't done it in anything in secondary school I didn't have anything so for a while I just pretended it was basketball and I really tried hard at that <laughs> and that was kind of what my focus was um, yeah. but yeah I was, you know I was only okay at basketball really. So when did it go from just a bit of social running to something serious? Um, after Dara my second son was born I decided to um like I had run at state level at that stage and I had run, won a national, the national half marathon championships one year. Cool. Um, so I knew I was better the longer, the longer the distance was. So I tried to, you know, decided I'd give the marathon a go. And so I ran my first marathon in Melbourne in 2014 and I got a world qualifier for the following, the athletics championships the following year. And I was at that point, I was like, all right, I need to start taking this a bit more seriously because, you know, I've obviously got a bit of talent in that area. So I should maybe <laughs> try and improve, you know, get a bit more serious about it. You um, got a world championship qualifier from your first marathon that you ever ran at the age of 37. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, at this stage, what is your husband or what are your fam- what's your family thinking? Like, because you've gone from mum, she works in IT, to suddenly, okay, mum's like she's over there representing the country at the World Championships and is running so much. Like that's a huge turnaround, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So it was actually uh, initially when I started running, you know, it was a big change for Colin, for my husband, because we just had a newborn baby and... Um, uh, you know, people were suggesting that I sign up to an athletic club and, you know, start racing at state races, which were almost every weekend. <laughs> and Colin was like, really, is now the time to start, you know, you know, start focusing on something new that takes up that much of your time and that. So, because he would have no idea this would become essentially your career. No, not, not yeah, at all. At like stage. at the time, at that stage, it was just a hobby and really, you know, we didn't have, have a lot of time. There was just the two of us here. We didn't have any help from, um, any grandparents or anything. So, yeah, so I didn't, I guess we we were both in that mindset. So I didn't, that's probably why it took me so long to get serious about it Mm. Uh, because it was just, you know, a hobby and something I did for myself and that. So, um, but as the years went by and as I got much better at it, yeah, we started to realize, you know, the potential. And so Colin, yeah, was obviously has become more and more supportive and is mm. fully behind me, you know, now. Um, my family in Ireland just, they were shocked when I made the world championships because <laughs> I wasn't really telling them that much about my running before that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that big of a team. And then I was like, oh, I'm on the Australian team to <laughs> run at the World Championships. So there, that was a real shock for them. Um, and was it then when you were at the World Championships that you realised you possibly could have am- Olympic ambitions when you're around here with the world's best athletes at the world champs? Is that when you thought Olympics could happen or when did Olympics come into your mind? 
Yeah, not really because because I was 38 at that World Championships, I thought this is my one and only time that I'll get to do this. Uh, so, but, but after that, I just improved and, you know, um, started running better. And um, the Olympics, I think, when did that become? I wanted to go to Rio. So I think after, you know, after a couple of years of, racing competitively and like still improving um you know i i realized that i was in with a shot and um you so know. the world champs this is my one shot this is this is going to be my peak and then you just kept getting yeah. better and better and better yeah and you know i made other teams like the world half team and the cross country team and then yeah i just i slowly realized that wasn't the end for me it was just the beginning so yeah. And that was in 2015. I yep. want to talk a little bit about why you are representing Australia rather than Ireland because your first instinct was to represent Ireland at those world champs that you qualified for. Yeah, so I hadn't, because I hadn't run um, at all in Ireland, like I didn't really um, fully understand the the, um, the rules about representing different countries in that and um, I after getting uh, the qualifier, I presumed because I was Irish born that I would run for Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, just naturally what was going to happen. And, Mm -hmm. um, but a month later, Athletics Ireland um, changed their standard for the the world champs for the following year um, to make it faster than my time. Mm. So um, World Athletics set their own time, which was 2.45 Mm -hmm. to qualify. And I had run a 2.34 um, which so I was well within the qualifying mm. mark, but then Athletics Ireland changed their qualifying time to two thirty three thirty, um, purposely cutting me off so that I couldn't represent them. Did they do um, that on purpose? Oh. I, I think so. Yeah, like wow. my coach had been in touch with them to say Sinead's just run a world qualifier. Um, she'd love to chat to someone about you know uh, going to the world championships next year and. I don't think he got any response back. And wow. so in November of that year, they changed the qualifying time. So I was wow. like really upset by that. How did that make um, you feel? Like that's your... I was devastated. Like, like I couldn't understand it. And um, I took it really personally, obviously. Mm. Um, but they ended up not sending anybody to that world championship. So I'm, I think it was like a cost cutting thing they didn't want to have to pay for someone I don't know but um my coach was like well you know you're a citizen of Australia and you haven't run for Ireland before so you can you can run for Australia if you want and I was like gosh yeah absolutely like and Athletics Australia um gave me the opportunity and I jumped at it. Ireland's (laughs) loss is our gain 100%. (laughs) It's a bit of a blessing then that you discovered your talent so late because had you been like you know, a running prodigy when you were little, then that would have cancelled you out for us? Well, it, had I run for Ireland um, prior to that, I think I would have had to wait three years to change allegiance to Australia. Okay. So, yeah, so because I hadn't run for them before, I could run for Australia without having to wait for, you know, three years. I love that. How did you go with those world champs in 2015? Um, I came 21st. So I was, yeah, I was happy with that at the time. (laughs) Can you explain to us then your typical training week? What did that look like for you at that stage? At that stage, I wasn't um, doing as much training as I am now. So I, I think I was running six days a week. I would have run a max of 120K. Mm -hmm. um, And I had like just two quality sessions a week so on a Tuesday I'd have um like speed session which would be something like six by a k and then on a Thursday a tempo session of around 10k to maybe 14k um and then a long run on Sunday and then the rest was just easy easy running and what about now how hard is it to juggle work mum life and this intense training that you've got at the moment because you've you're doing all of it, aren't you? Yeah. So, um, as the years have gone by, my training has, um, increased a lot. So I would run like 180, 380 and 200 K a week now. And I run every day, twice a day, most days. 
Um, my threshold sessions are a lot longer and my speed sessions as well. Mm. So it's become a lot more intense. Um, but at the same time, um, I, my life balance is better because the Mm. boys are a little bit older. So, um, and they're at school and that, so I have a bit more time for training and also, um, I got some flexibility with work at NAB. They allowed me to work like four days over five, which meant that I could start work at 11. Yeah. So I'd get my training done in the morning and then work through till five or six and then run again in the evening. Um, so I found it like I found a much better balance as the years have gone by. I think I've gotten better with juggling things. It's good that we um, work so supportive as well because they would have yeah. had their IT senior analyst just being their IT senior analyst, but now it's only like, hang on, Sinead in IT, she's uh, an Olympian now. But that it's was funny something. actually, yeah. Like it, they, because they weren't initially, but when the Olympics came into the equation, they were like, oh, what? Um, what is this? And you know, they they're going to support me a lot more. So I'm actually going to probably reduce my hours again. Um, so they've yeah, they've really come on board to help me. Um, since the Olympics, which is going to make a massive difference. And for me, it's going to help a lot. Were there any moments when you were trying to juggle work and this training and this new life that you have just discovered and and grown for yourself? Were there any moments when you thought, maybe I should just quit? Maybe this is just too difficult? Or what am I doing chasing chasing this behemoth of a life? Because it's so different to where I thought I was going in life. Were there any moments when you thought, just what am I doing here? So, so many, so many, because running is, it's such a grind really. Like you have to do it twice a day and like often like really early in the morning. So I would much rather, you know, sleep in or like many times, you know, life or things are just so busy that Mm. just at the end of the day, I would just sometimes just find myself sitting on the edge of the bed and just crying because it was so hard. Um, but you know, I have lots of moments like that and, but I've got, you know, Colin there to support me and the boys and they're really, they're really excited about my running and, you know, making the Olympics and I absolutely love it as well. I would be very, it would take a lot for me to throw in the towel. It really, you know, enhances my life and their lives and yeah, like it's really hard, but I don't think, I think everything in life that's worth it is, you know, it's not going to come easy. It's going to be, you know, When you were in those moments, when you thought, what am I doing here? Should it just go back to being a hobby? I'm getting up at 4.30 in the mornings. I know that's when you were doing some of your runs before the NAB stepped in and helped you out with flexibility with the hours. But um, what spurred you on to keep going? What was it that you just thought, no, I'm going to keep pursuing this? Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think in some ways it's just my personality when I commit to something like I am going to give it everything and you know I'm not going to quit and I can be really stubborn about it Mm. but also I think because I love it so much Mm. that life without running and life uh yeah just without that being in my life would be much harder like when I'm injured and I'm not training I just feel I'm just not as happy and uh, yeah, I feel like there's a massive gap in my life. So the alternative, yeah, it just doesn't appeal to me. So I just, <laughs> yeah, you know, for, for the most part, it's, um, I feel really lucky and it's a real blessing to be able to do this and to, to share it with the boys and, you know, and it makes me happy, um, running. So, um, there's, there are of course times where it gets really tough, but yeah, you know, you just kind of have to look at the bigger picture and, yeah. Injury crueled Rio at that point mm. um, for you. How devastating was that to miss out on that? Yeah, that was really upsetting because I was 40 and I thought that was my last chance at an Olympics. And the, just the fact that I was injured and I couldn't post a qualifying time to know whether I deserved to be there or not. I think I, it, it would have been easier to handle it had I tried to get the qualifier and I missed or I was fourth and just not fast enough at least you know I was able to give it a shot but been injured for I think it was five months beforehand and not been able to have a go at it was really upsetting 
yeah and <laughs> like I remember a guy at work was like oh gosh you could have been an Olympian and I was like oh my god uh, is that it <laughs> am I never going to be an Olympian now and that's what I kind of thought at the time because you know being 40 there's not that many people who you know make the Olympics out mm. their first Olympics after that um not in marathon running, really. There's no one that had your story. You were pretty much your own idol in that way. You know, you couldn't go, oh, but like so-and-so back in 1986 yeah. did it. She was <laughs> like 40 and then she qualified for the Olympics after only picking it up when she was 33. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary and it shows, you know, the depth of um, of your self-belief. Would I be right in that you were your own story that you were following and you were your own idol in a way? Um, well, I guess I had no, yeah, no one to look to and say, oh, well, this is when, you know, typically someone who starts when they're 33, this is when things start to unravel. <laughs> so, you know, I am like, I guess, carving my own path in this and I'm just, you know, continuing as for as long as I am competitive. Um, and yeah, it's great that, you know, I'm 44 and I'm still um, training is getting better. And, you know, I'm going to be at this for, I'm definitely, you know, I'm going to have a, a go to make Paris in, in three years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm going to keep going until, yeah, until I'm not competitive anymore. You won the Melbourne Marathon in 2018. You won it, a course record, and you also mm -hmm. posted the third fastest marathon time from a female, Aussie female ever. Um, you set a new PB in the 2019 London Marathon where you were seventh at 2.24.11. Then in the 2019 New York Marathon, you were fifth. It was really all falling into place heading to Tokyo but I really think this is a really good time in the podcast to just stop and, and talk about the fact that you hate people referring to your age all the time, don't you? Can you explain to us why why that is? Yeah, because um, I feel that people are constantly trying to limit me and limit what I can do because of my age. Mm. Um, but for me, I'm racing in the open age category. Mm. Um, age just has no bearing on it at all and you know by all with all this focus being on my age it's as if people are saying you know that's a good result for someone in their 40s but that's not true it's what I'm doing is a good result for somebody an athlete of any age <laughs> yeah like when I came oh when I raced London Marathon in 2019 I got my PB of 224, like in the coverage, they just referred to me as the 42 year old. Mm. It wasn't Sinead or a diver or anything. It was, oh, and the 42 year old is doing this. And, mm. um, when I, I was leading the race to just over halfway and then the group of Africans came past me and one of the commentators said, um, oh, now the race is proper. The class oh. has moved to the front. Gosh. <laughs> I like, yeah. It's like, wow, this is unbelievable. And in New York, I placed fifth, but an Australian um, uh, news uh, group <laughs> didn't come, didn't say I came fifth at New York Marathon. They were like, um, she was the first Masters runner. I was like, oh, oh. my God. <laughs> like yeah. fifth, fifth out of major marathon is an amazing Huge. achievement. Yeah. yeah. And then they start talking about my, you know, master, where yeah. I placed in the master's race. It was just, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, I feel um, that focus should be on my performance and not, mm. not my age. Um, yeah. But there is like, I'm, I'm 40 in a couple of months as well. And so I love your age and I love referring to it because I'm like, <laughs> see, when it doesn't have to be, you know, that we have to slow down as we get older. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and and I feel like you're almost redefining 40s for all of us in a way. So I cheer yeah. you on because of the age because I'm like, yeah, go you. Like, and it gives me inspiration that, you know, maybe my body can do more than than what I and what people place limits on so yeah like I'm like I'm proud of being 44 I don't have yeah. an issue with it and but I just hate when people try to limit me because of that 
you know, um, try to tell me that as a 44 year old, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And, you know, I need to learn my place. And yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just the society seems to like to um, place people in a certain box. And, you know, if you if you step outside that, it's always questioned and people are like, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's frustrating. What if, has it had any effect on you with sponsorships and endorsements and brand endorsements and things like that? You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this has been the way since I started, you know, starting serious, being seriously competitive at 38, people think, okay, well, this is her last race and mm. this is her last race. Every race they think is my last race. And mm. like six years on, I've placed okay. 10 Attempt at the Olympics, <laughs> getting Can better. Get better. And I'm like, see, you know, I'm still going, but um, because of my age, um, they seem to think that I don't have any uh, like future in it. Mm. But they thought that when I was 38, and I at least had six years, like, um, and I'll continue to be competitive for years to come for sure. Like, I'm, as I said, getting faster in training and that. So I'm mm. still on the off. So yeah. You're getting better and better, faster and faster. You came 10th at the Olympics. So look out Paris, um, if there's <laughs> any brands and sponsors um, <laughs> out there. You measure everything in running years though, don't you? Which I think is a really yeah. important thing. Explain that. Yeah. To so um, I started when I was 33, so I've only been running for like 11 years. So my body just hasn't had um, the same wear and tear as athletes who, you know, started when they were younger. So a lot of athletes would have a career, you know, spanning 20 years or more. Um, so I think I'm still young in running years and yeah, like it's, it's definitely been a benefit to me, I guess, Mm. in that sense, starting later. Um, I think that's awesome. And I think that's a, that's a really strong, strong message strong message to brands as well, because in running years, you're very young. You're only 11. Yeah. So you're yeah. pretty much <laughs> a running prodigy now, like a teenage yeah. prodigy now. <laughs> yeah. um, is there any part of you that um, saying all that and, and measuring things in, in running years, and also you started getting serious about running after you had kids as well. Um, so you haven't had to think about, okay, well, you know, how am I going to balance this when I have kids or, you know, have that on your mind? as well, which a lot of athletes do and a lot of women do, let's be honest, in every aspect of of our careers. Um, But is there any aspect then of you that wishes you maybe picked it up younger and you had a typical kind of timeline for being an Olympic runner or are you happy the way it worked out? Yeah, for sure. I I would definitely not recommend this approach for people <laughs> it's definitely been quite challenging like I would love to have started running in my 20s and um to have not to, you know to have been able to just focus on that for a while and um also not have to constantly come up against challenges because of my age mm. it, that's you know probably the most difficult part of this it's just constantly having to fight for everything, you know, fight yeah. for, um, respect as an athlete, fight for funding, mm. fight for sponsorship mm. <laughs> and trying to, you know, I, I, I would love to not have to do that and just be a young athlete with, you know, that would just go through the, uh, the typical, um, trajectory. proven, mm. yeah, proven trajectory so that people, you know, have belief in you without you having to constantly fight for it. Mm. Um, and like, yeah, I would love to have been a professional athlete. I'd love that to have been my career. Um, it's definitely, you know, what I'm most passionate about and what I love, but it's also great to, to do this now and to share this with my kids and mm. for them to be there and, you know, we've gone through this together and it's been really special in that re- that regard as well. I think it's probably a good time now. We've talked about all your achievements and, and everything and to also play you a message from someone who runs with you and competes with you, Australian marathon runner Ellie Pashley, sent us this little memo um, about you and I think it sums you up pretty well. Take a listen. Sinead. Oh, I don't know where to start. So... Sinead's one of the toughest competitors that 
I've ever raced and she is also one of my favourite people. So she's a thoughtful and loyal friend and in running she is driven and, you know, she has this no-fuss approach where she's juggling all these things in life. She's got a career, she's got a family, she's marathon training year-round where she's running huge mileage and, yeah, I think one of the most special things about her is how she just gets it done. She never complains. I never hear her say she's tired, which just blows my mind because she's got so much going on. But yeah, she she's just one tough person. I think I've learned a lot from Sinead over the years, probably more than she realises, but I've been able to watch her go from being a, a really good marathon runner who was making Australian teams to in the past five or six years being one of the best marathon runners in the world. And, you know, it's been such a privilege to to watch it and to be a part of it in, in some ways. But, yeah, just seeing her work ethic and uh, the way that she approaches racing and I think she's got an inner self-confidence that you you don't really see except in the way that she races and, you know, she gets on the start line in a marathon and she knows that she's just as good as everybody else there and she knows what she's capable of and, and she really puts it all out there and, um, yeah, she would never, ever finish a race without absolutely fighting to the end. So that's been something that I've learnt a lot from and I've followed her lead in many races and I think she's pulled me through to some of my best ever times, so... Yeah, I've I've been lucky to observe her over the years and and learn so much about um, you know the benefits of of working hard and just putting those big weeks together for years at years on end and yeah it's it's pretty special what she's been able to achieve. I'm really excited to see what she can achieve over the next few years and I'm sure she's going to be there in Paris on the start line again as one of the top contenders and yeah I think the. Uh, She's going to give the Australian marathon record a shake too. So, yeah, that's going to be really fun to watch and, and I'm looking forward to many more years racing together. Oh, <laughs> that's so lovely. Ellie and I have been like on this journey together. She's like one of my very good friends and we've been on so many teams and shared rooms together. So, yeah, that's really lovely to hear. Really special. I think it shows the respect that you have from so many people, and especially you know someone your peer. She, she's your competitor. You train with her sometimes. You got separate coaches, but you train with her sometimes. But yeah, it just shows you the respect that your peers have for you. Oh, that's really lovely. Ellie is just such a wonderful person. Yeah. We let's talk about the Tokyo Games because obviously it was meant to take place in twenty twenty. Then COVID happened. And as we said, 18, 19, they were big years for you and it was building also nicely to the 2020 mm. Tokyo Games. You're also based in Melbourne, the most locked down city <laughs> in the world in this pandemic. Yeah. You pretty much, it sounds dramatic, but escaped with the Australian team and had to relocate and you went to Canberra. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, uh, so we're in Melbourne and we went into lockdown again and um, I had a couple of races um, chosen for my build up for the Olympics. Um, and racing is like an important part of any build up, you know, for the train for just to have a few races is important for training. Um, but I couldn't actually make, get to, um, there was a 10k race in Launceston and because we were in lockdown I couldn't make that race. And then the half marathon on the Gold Coast was my next goal. And we were worried that we weren't going to be able to get to that either. Um, so, um, myself and the other marathoners, um, left Victoria and went to Canberra so that we could make our way to Queensland after been there for two weeks. But then Canberra became, I think a red zone. And so we left, uh, straight away and went to Queensland so that we could race and then in Queensland for the half marathon. And then that ended up getting canceled a few days beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, we went to Cairns for the Athletics Australia, had a training camp there. Um, so at this stage, I had been away from home like for a few weeks, all in the attempts to make 
these races that ended up being cancelled mm. so it was kind of it almost felt like a pointless exercise and I was feeling really guilty from being away for being away from home mm. and from away from the boys for that long and then you know still been on the training camping cans and going to Sapporo um, so I was away in total for two months um, I think that was that was probably the most difficult. I haven't been away from them, from the boys for that long before. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was, it was really great to get home after that and just spend a few weeks with them. Yeah. Two weeks of hotel quarantining as well on the back of that. Oh but, yes. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and let's talk about the condition Tokyo and the conditions in Sapporo. Heat. <laughs> very, very, very hot. What did you do in the lead up to the race? Ice baths, all that kind of stuff. Like right before the race, were you you were in ice baths? What? How did you deal with the heat, and how did you try to counter that heat? So on the day of our race, it got up. To, it would have, I think, it got up to thirty four on the day. But our race is in the morning, so it was around thirty one, thirty two. But it felt like. So we had also gone to Cairns for heat training. Mm-hmm. That's why the, the training camp was there. And it was around 28 degrees there. But it felt like 28 degrees, like really nice, like not not too hot. Yeah. But then we went to Sapporo and uh, 28 degrees in Sapporo feel, felt like 34, 35 degrees wow. because of the humidity, I mm. think. So it felt a lot hotter. So I we were a bit worried at that point because... We had thought in cans, oh, this is perfect, you know, the perfect lead in. This is what the temperatures will be. And then we got to Sporo and it was a lot hotter. And on the day of the R race, they actually got a bit worried about the heat and they moved the race um, forward an hour so that we started at 6 instead of 7 a.m. Wow. And then before the race, so we had uh, a lot of help from um you know, the AA staff there and they helped us prep. So we had, we did a thing called hyperhydration before the race, which mm-hmm. is like drinking this sodium heavy drink, um, just so that you're more hydrated when you start with the theory being that, um, you won't get as dehydrated and your performance won't be as impacted towards the end, the latter half of the race, but it, it makes you feel very, um, very kind of heavy and, mm. Mm, yeah, it was it was interesting, but we also did an ice bath for thirty minutes before the race, and surprisingly, we were it was just the Aussies that did that, which surprised me because it was really, I found it really beneficial. So you mm. get your core temperature down. So when we got to the start line, like myself, Ellie and Lisa, we were shivering, like we were freezing, <laughs> even though it was really hot. And we had like after the ice bath, we'd put on ice vests. And we also had, when we started, we had like these cooler um, towels around our neck. Yeah, yeah neckties, uh, which I actually took to mine really early because it was kind of bouncing up and down on my mm. neck. I didn't find it that useful, but um, definitely the ice bath and the ice vest really helped helped a lot in the heat. Leading into that race, did you have any, what, what were you aiming for? What was your goal? Um, so because, of, because we knew it was going to be hot, um, any time aspirations went out the window. I knew that, you know, a top 20 would be um, a good result. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> uh, you know, ideally I wanted a top 10. Yeah. And then in a perfect world, a podium would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew that, that, like, I knew that wasn't really realistic. Um, uh, so, but the most important thing to me, like the night, the night before I was really worried about the heat Mm. and, um, I wanted to make sure that I raced well and raced strongly and Mm. I didn't uh, collapse from the heat because I knew the boys would be watching at home and that would be really upsetting for them. Mm. So I, my main goal was to, to race really smart and not do anything stupid. And, Mm. you know, uh, like I know I've raced enough marathons to know how hard it gets at 32k and with the heat thrown in and humidity I needed mm-hmm. to be very conservative up to that point and I'm really glad I did that because it still got really hard at 32k I was like wow <laughs> like the humidity can really impact you um but yeah you don't even realize it and then you get you know suddenly start to struggle yeah so 
yeah, it's, I had no idea what position I was in in the race because the lead pack had kind of I'd separated from them maybe at the third drink stop. And I, I didn't, I hadn't counted how many people were in that group. And then there was a lot of toing and froing and I was passing people out. And uh, so coming into the finish straight, um, we just turned a corner and there was 400 meters to go. And I just saw a girl up ahead of me and I was like, all right, I'm going to have to pass her out, try and pass her out because this could be an important spot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I did pass her and I'm you're so glad that I did that because it ended up in for the top 10 spot. Yeah. So I would have been top 10. <laughs> It sounds better than top yeah. 11. <laughs> she could have been third and you could have been fourth. That means they have podium oh spot too. Yeah. So you had no idea because you were picking people off in that, that yeah. last 10Ks, weren't you? There were people that you were just overtaking yeah. in that last 10Ks. Um, were you feeling, feeling good or were you just feeling better than everyone else? And did you have any I definitely art? wasn't feeling good, but it definitely helps when you start passing people. Yeah. Like you go, okay, like everyone is struggling here. Yeah. Um, and I may, even though I feel like I'm struggling, like I knew I was still going pretty well. Like I checked my watch and I was like, wow, like I'm still going, or, I'm going okay here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, just passing people out was definitely, you know, definitely helped motivate me. So when did you learn that you were 10th at the Olympics? Well, so I, yeah, when I crossed the finish line, I actually, the first thing I saw was uh, Molly Seidel. She's the American girl who came third. I was like, oh my gosh, because she was holding the flag. And I was like, Molly. <laughs> so I was talking to her and then um, they kind of escort you out of the area. Mm-hmm. And I bumped into the AA media guy mm-hmm. and I just said, like, what position did I come? And he was like, you're top 10. <laughs> so I was like, are you sure? He was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was really delighted with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um- when did you talk to your boys and what was their reaction and how did that make you feel when you first <laughs> talked to them and you would just become come tenth? So I so I did the interview after my race and then I got um, selected for drug testing. So mm-hmm. I was in the the drug testing room and I whipped out my phone because I was dying to talk to the boys and put them on FaceTime and next thing um, all the Japanese officials were over around me and they're like no 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 <laughs> like they were like you can't you can't use your phone in here and I was like oh sorry <laughs> like so I had to hang up and then I was in there for a couple of hours because I was super dehydrated after the race yeah um, oh, and then yeah yeah you have to be and yeah it takes a long time um so then once I got back to the hotel room um I called them straight away and mm-hmm they were really excited and because of like my the finish and everything it was almost you know it, it made it really exciting for them to watch um so they were all screaming at the tv my sister was there she's got a two-year-old daughter <laughs> because every, because everyone started screaming she started crying <laughs> she didn't know what was going on but um yeah it made it really exciting for them to watch um, which was fun you're the highest placed Aussie at 10th um as yeah. well What's the best result from an Aussie at a marathon, Aussie female, at Olympic marathon, sorry? Uh, Olympic marathon was Lisa Ondiecki. She was seventh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then me in 10th is the next best one. Wow. How's that? That's that fantastic. You just raced the London marathon again. Um, you're talking to us in hotel quarantine. Yep. Um, you came 12th there, time of 2.27. Why did you choose to do that race so close? To Tokyo, because that, that's a really short time. Is that usual in marathon running? You don't you? No, not at all. Like normally, I wouldn't race more than three a year. Wow. Okay. Um, yep. And like I, you need like a solid build up for each race, probably yeah. three months minimum, and that's if you're starting off at a you know, starting off fit. Mm. Um, um, my coach Nick had said it to me before the Olympics. I was. And, and my initial thought was absolutely not. I'm not going to do that because I'll be at the Olympics and then two weeks quarantine and then, you know, another two weeks trying to recover and get back to running easy outside. And then suddenly there's only like three weeks to train. I just thought it was not doable. But um, I got invited to London and I was going to, uh, I get an appearance fee. Mm-hmm. So if I re- like got a certain time, I would get paid, you know, um, to do that race. So 
I was like, this is a good opportunity for me to, if I, if I do this race, then the next few months, you know, I can cut back on work a bit. So mm. it'll make life a lot more manageable. Yeah. Um, so that was primarily the reason why I went. Yeah. Um, and I had to get us up to 28, which I did, yeah, which nice. was great. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that'll, I'm in hotel quarantine now, which is not a lot of fun. Mm. Um, but, and I, but once I get home, you know, um, with that appearance fee and that I can, yeah, it'll make things easier for the next few months. So that was yeah, the reason I did it. And what's next? Obviously, we've got Birmingham, the Commonwealth Games in 2022 next year. Obviously, lots. Yeah. how big of a thrill would that be to, you know, so close to your family and friends who, who couldn't be there at Tokyo? Yeah. Yeah, that was disappointing because they were all going to come over if when the Games were on mm. in 2020. But then obviously no international spectators this year. Um, so next year we've got Com Games and World Champs like within a couple of weeks of each other. I think the marathons are 10 days apart, so I won't be doing both. Definitely okay. not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would love to try and qualify for the 10K for the World Champs yep. and then the marathon for the Com Games. But yeah, we, I don't, yeah we'll see. That'll probably be my focus for the start of next year. And then um, Com Games in Birmingham would be a big one. Yeah, I'm definitely keen to do that. And yeah, with it being so close to Ireland as well, it would be amazing, you know, to be able to get back and see people or they could come over as well. And yeah, it would be good. You've talked about Paris um, being on the plans. And as we said, you're just getting better and better and better and faster and faster and faster. Ellie mentioned the um, the record, the Australian marathon record. Is that something that you want to go after? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> so that record is held by Benita. Um, she, yeah, she, uh, she got that in, I think it was Chicago. Yeah. Um, time of two, 22, 36, I think, mm-hmm. or 23. I can't remember the seconds, but, um, my best time is two twenty four. So, um, I would love to have a crack at that at some point. Uh, I don't know if I'll get it or not, but I definitely want to want to give it a go. I feel like you can do anything you put your mind to. If what has come out of this podcast, I love Benita Willis. She's actually, this will surprise you. I wanted to get through this whole podcast without mentioning that I've run marathons because I always talk it because it's not going to happen again. (laughs) Two marathons in 10 months. But Benita, actually, I was living in Brisbane at the time. Not great times. We won't go into it, but still got them done. But Monita actually trained me for my second no marathon. Way. Yeah, she did. Oh, so cool. she's an exceptional human. Anyone who can do that for me and get me through she's that. She's amazing. She's yeah, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lady. So, um, yeah, but um, I don't think she would have any qualms at all with you breaking her record as well. Oh, she, she is so nice. Like she uh, always messages me before my marathons to wish me well. And, you know, yeah, cool. she's really excited about yeah. Uh, marathon running and yeah she would be cool I'm sure. I'm glad she gets a shout out in this one too. Um, <laughs> we cannot wait to see what you do on on the world stage and as you continue on I mean you're so young you're only 11 in running years <laughs> Sinead so young you've got the world at your um the world is your oyster so um you've got everything ahead of you um <laughs> but let's go we finished every episode by asking our guests what they would tell if they had a message that they could go back and, and tell their 10-year-old self, if you could go back to that little Sinead who is having a hard time in primary school over in Ireland and doesn't know yet what incredible things await for her and incredible talent she has hidden at the moment, what would you go back and tell that that little Sinead? Um, I think I would probably tell her um, to believe in herself and to you know, not doubt so much her own abilities and um, speak up for herself a bit more. Mm. Um, Would you just tell her to run? (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely tell her (laughs) to start following athletics. (laughs) Maybe to look into into that a bit more. Um, But to believe in yourself? Yeah, I think so. Fantastic. Well, Sinead, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on On Her Game. Um, I've really enjoyed this chat. I've enjoyed following your journey and I cannot wait to see what you do next. So thank you for providing all of us inspiration um, and motivation. And yeah, thank you for for everything you've done for, um, 
for marathon running and for athletics in Australia. I'm so glad you're representing Australia and and not Ireland. It's it's our big win and their loss <laughs> as well. They celebrate you though, don't they? They oh yeah, they're like really supportive and really behind me. And that it was you know it was only whoever a few people in athletics Ireland that kind of. <laughs> you know didn't want me <laughs> at the time but ever, like the people who matter are like really behind me yeah uh, in Ireland yeah I've a lot of support from there fantastic well thank you so much for sharing your story on On Her Game oh thanks for having me it's been a pleasure On Her Game was presented by me Sam Squires producer Lindsay Green audio producer Nikki Sitch executive producer Jennifer Goggin this episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.